So last week, as we were wrapping up this, this, this idea of, of studying the gospel and, and the, the best news of the gospel, last week we looked at the Great Commission. We looked at this commission that, that Jesus placed on all of his followers, that he placed on his church, on us. You know, if you've ever gotten a chance to go to a denominational meeting, um, which none of us really have over the last year, but if you've ever gotten a chance to go to, to a state convention or, or, a, a, or, a, or a national convention or any denominational meeting, there's always this opportunity, there's always this time in which we commission people. A, a few years ago, not a few years ago, it wasn't that long ago, Carter, about a year and year and a half ago, the last time we were able to go to the state convention meeting, we had an opportunity and we commissioned a whole bunch of church planters. So these were folks who had come out of churches here in North Carolina. They had, um, were working with folks and they had gone somewhere in this state to start a church, to plant a church. We always have this opportunity, too, to, to, to commission missionaries. I know we've actually done that here. When folks have left here to, to go and do mission work, we, we commission them. We, we say that, that you are going to do this thing that we know that God has called you to. And sometimes when we do that, we can, we can fall into this illusion that those are the people that are commissioned and we are not. But what I would offer is that when we do those things, we are simply re-speaking the commission that Jesus gave to all of us. And that we're saying that for this particular moment, for this particular task, we feel like this is how God is calling you to live out the commission that rests on all of us. So you, church planter, you don't have a commission different from me. It's just being lived out in this moment in time and in this place in a slightly different way than it is for you, for, for me. You, international missionary going to Jamaica or Bulgaria or any number of places where we commissioned and send missionaries to the Philippines, it's not that you have a different commission than us. It's the same commission. It's Jesus' commission to make disciples just at this moment in time. Your call from God is such that it's taking you to the Philippines or to Jamaica or to Bulgaria. So we have this, this task from Jesus, this commission from Jesus to make disciples. But we, we talked about that last week. What we didn't really talk about, at least not as much, and I want to... I want to just bring it up again so that we understand where we're at as we're talking about this. What is a disciple? What exactly is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. A disciple is, is, is a learner, someone who, who takes on the way of, of the master, of the teacher, of the leader, the rabbi, the guru. And I'm using those words because disciple is not a Christian-only word. We use it a lot. We use the word disciple to describe those 12 men called by Jesus whose names we know in the Gospels, and we're going to be talking about them in a couple of weeks. 
but anybody can be a disciple. A disciple is one who wants to grow in the image of the leader, the teacher, the guru, the rabbi that they are following. So what's a Christian disciple? It's one who follows Jesus. A one who takes Jesus and places Jesus in that place in their life. We want to follow you. We want to grow into your image. We want to grow into your likeness. We're the We're the people who take on the way of Jesus. The Greek word for way is hodos. And and early on in the life of the church, that's how members of the church, the people that we would come to be called Christians, that's how they were known. They were followers of the hodos, of the way of Jesus. Of course, in Antioch, they got the name Christian. But what would, it, what would it mean when we have a better understanding of what we are called to be as disciples if we still called ourselves followers of the way? We're going to get in the way of Jesus. And I don't mean get in the way. Some of us get in the way of Jesus by like standing in front of him like, no, you, know, you, you can't have that part of my life. That's not what I mean. When I mean way, I mean the, the path. We want to grow in Christ's likeness. We want to become more like him. I was reminded yesterday of, a, of this this incident that happens in the, in the first part of the book of John. It's in the third chapter of the book of John where a bunch of folks come to John the Baptist and they say, hey, this Jesus guy is taking your followers. You were baptizing people and now, and now your cousin's out here doing the same thing except he's taking, he's taking your folks. And the way John responds is he must increase and I must decrease. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, is to grow in Christ's likeness, to see him increase and ourselves decrease. So if we're called to be disciples of Jesus, to to be followers of Jesus, to be followers of the way of Jesus— to grow in Christ's likeness, but if we're also commissioned by our teacher, by Jesus, to, to make disciples, then it would make sense that for us to make disciples in the way that Jesus made disciples. And that's what we're going to be looking at over, over the next several weeks. There, there are four, five sort of types of relationships that were central to Jesus' disciple-making. And that's what we're going to be looking at. One a week over this week and then the next four. And, and while we're doing that, we're going to be asking ourselves two questions. We're, we're going to be asking ourselves, one, what are the biblical pictures of Jesus discipling within these five types of relationships? And then we're going to ask the question, how do you see these five types of relationships within the context of the church and your own life? 
Because I think these, these five types of relationships are central to our understanding of what it is to follow the way of Jesus, to make disciples, and to be a disciple. But it also means that over the course of the next five weeks, we might have to ask ourselves some other questions, some, some hard questions about how the church, whether it be this congregation or the church as a whole, has been trying to make disciples, and whether or not those methods are biblical or whether or not we've been implementing them biblically. I can think of nothing better for us to do in the run-up to Easter than to closely study the way of Jesus and do our best over these next five weeks to grow in Christ-likeness as we follow the way of Jesus, the, the steps of Jesus, the path of Jesus to the cross. So this morning we're going to be in Mark. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We're in uh, the first, very first chapter of Mark, starting with the 35th verse. Mark 1, 35. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I might preach there too. This is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we... As we enter into the study of your word this morning, as we, as we enter into this, this journey to try and get in the way that you have laid out for us. I just pray that you would be with us. Be with us for this, for this whole journey, but, but be with us this morning. And God, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. So we're talking about the relationships that Jesus had that helped him foster a culture of discipleship, that helped him make disciples, and we read this text. I mean, Simon and the others show up. I think it's interesting that Mark is willing to throw Simon under the bus here, but no one else. What is, what relationship is here that helps us understand the disciple-making way of Jesus? It's Jesus' relationship with God. That's where the disciple-making journey must start is the relationship with God. I want us to, to look here at, at, at this just as an example. We, there are any number of passages from the Gospels that, 
that we could have looked at this morning to try and understand Jesus' relationship with God, Jesus' relationship with God the Father, but, but we're here. And so I want us to, to sort of look at this as an example to help us understand how Jesus built, fostered, nurtured this relationship. Very early in the morning while it was still dark. Well, I'm out. There's a reason the sun comes up, and that's to get you up. But what does Jesus do? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, and he went out, and he made his way to a deserted place. Jesus is getting up in, in solitude. He's getting up. He's starting his day with God. You know, there's, there's a lot out there about when is the best time for us to, to have that, that personal time with God. And there are a lot of folks who say, and, and, and I have a tendency of being one of them, time of day isn't as important as it is to have it. Some of us simply are not morning people. About 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, that's when my brain finally kicks on, and I'm worth something. And I'm worth something until about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and then my brain turns off again. I don't know why. It's probably spending too many years in school and staying up late working on papers, and I've just wired myself that way. But I do think there is something to be said for starting your day with God. There is something to be said for starting your day with a time of prayer and study. Because when you start your day that way, everything else that happens to you over the course of the day, you are seeing through that time that you spent with God. Sort of getting yourself off on, on the right foot. So I'll be honest. Sometimes the first thing in the morning, not my best study time. But I really do try and start every day, even if it's just a few moments, alone with God. He started his day but he also started his day, notice, he went out by himself. Like, he went out. So, wherever he was, in order to get alone time with God, he had to leave that place. And he went out, and he was alone. He, he found solitude. Now, we, we live in a world of distractions, and I, again, I want to be really clear here. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. Sometimes we know that, right? Like we, we know something, but we haven't seen it fully manifested and lived out in our own lives yet. Man, let me tell you how quick it is for me to roll over first thing in the morning and pick this thing up. 
and I've got all these notifications. Well, there are all of the there are all the fire calls that I've missed this week because because workman's comp hasn't let me return to duty yet, and um, there's a whole bunch of text messages from a buddy of mine, and there's the New York Times, and um, oh, the, the 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 vacuum cleaner robot is stuck again. Her name's Rosie, because I watched the Jetsons as a kid. But we can't, we bring all these distractions with us, right? Maybe it's our phone, maybe it's, you know, the internet in general. Maybe it's, it's our kids, because they're coming in first thing in the morning, and they want attention, and they want to be fed, and they want to get to school on time. Maybe it's, maybe it's the cat. Or the dog. Maybe it's your spouse. There are all sorts of things that that can distract us. They can pull us away. Sometimes you're trying your best to have your time in the morning with God and in study, and your husband wants to talk to you instead of letting you do your study time. Not that that would ever happen in our house. But there are all these distractions that can come in. You know, good communication, good relationship building requires attention. This is one of the things that I work with couples on when we're doing premarital counseling. Most of my premarital counseling is about communication. Helping couples learn how to communicate on a deeper level. Because I firmly believe that if you've got two people coming in who are relatively compatible, who are in love with each other, particularly if both of them are believers, communication is going to be the thing that causes the biggest headache. Maybe it's communication about money. Maybe it's communication about needs or desires, but it's communication. And so if we can give couples good tools for communication, they can build stronger and better relationships. But you cannot build a strong relationship if you are distracted 100% of the time. If every time you sit down at the dinner table or on the couch and you're trying to talk to somebody and they've got something going on on the TV or they've got something going on on their phone or they're reading a book or they're doing something else, you can't communicate, right? Because then you get that famous phrase, what did I just say? That's a scary one to hear. And yet, how often do we approach our time with God thinking that we can be distracted? That we can have the TV on in the background and still have a time of prayer. That we can, for some of us, that we can do it on our phone and not be distracted by the Twitter notifications or the Facebook notifications or the Instagram notifications that pop up. You know, for me, for me, I've got to do... I've got to do my time, my study with a, with a hard copy. I've got to have a hard copy of the Bible. I've got to have a hard copy of, of, of whatever it is I'm working through. Because if I've got this up, something is bound to distract me. Now, that's me. There are some folks who, who that's not a distraction for them, and that's awesome. 
we enter into our time with God and we feel like that we can just be distracted, that we can give a halfway effort to him and that's good enough to build a relationship. Well, it's not good enough to build a strong marriage. It's not good enough to build a strong relationship with your kid. And it's not good enough to build a strong relationship with God. Jesus went out to spend time alone with God. And here's something you may not know. You're not Jesus. If Jesus needed to be alone with God, distraction-free, you need to be alone with God, distraction-free. And then what's the next thing that we see? The next thing that we see in this passage is, is, is Jesus goes out, he, he tries to remove these distractions, the distraction eventually shows up, right? Simon eventually shows up. But it's only after Jesus has spent this time alone and in prayer that he says, let's go into the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. And then 39 tells us he went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. It was only after this this time of preparation, this time of prayer alone with God. And we see it over and over and over again that Jesus goes and spends time alone with God. You know, this is one of the great mysteries of the faith. So so Jesus, Jesus is God. Right? He's the God-man, he's the Son, he's the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead. And yet it appears from Scripture that he has this need to pursue relationship with God the Father. Why? Wouldn't he have had it already? Why, if he's, if he's God and the Father is God, why... Does the son need to pursue that relationship? And again, I'm going to come back to that. It's one of the mysteries of our faith. In a modern age, we want certainty. And there are certain things that on this side of paradise, on this side of heaven, we're never going to be certain about. And one of those is how the Trinity works. One of the problems, whenever you try and talk about the Trinity, you're almost always going to fall into some sort of heresy about the Trinity. So my answer to the Trinity is, uh, Scripture's clear, that's the way that it is, and that's the way that it is, and I'm, that's going to have to be okay for me right now. Because I see through a glass darkly. Eventually, I'll see you face to face. But I do think that this, this thing about Jesus having to pursue and, and pursuing a relationship with God the Father, it tells us something about the Trinity. It tells us that there is relationship in the Trinity between the three persons with each other. They are one, but they are somehow also three, and there's this certain, some theologians have called it a divine dance between the three persons of the Trinity. This relationship back and forth. Obviously not a Baptist theologian if they're talking about dancing. Oh, come on. I know it was a bad joke, but it was a kind of funny And so Jesus is maintaining this relationship with God the Father while he's here in the incarnation. 
So I think that's one aspect of it. But I think there's this other aspect of it. I think this is also demonstrative for us, for his followers. Because, see, that's what disciples do, right? They follow the way of the teacher. And if he's got these disciples, he wants them to do as he does. To live as he lived. And we're going to talk more about, about that and about the 12 in a couple of weeks. But I was, I was reading this week, and I came across this story, and it was just this, it was, it, it's such a clear example of this. There was this woman here in the United States who was a potter, a ceramicist. And, and she was very talented and, and, and knew a lot about what she was doing. But there was, a, there was a, a master potter in Japan on this particular kind of Japanese ceramics that she really wanted to study under. And so, so she approached him, and she said, I'd love to come and live with you. And he says, wonderful. My apprenticeships last three years. Because for the first two years or so, all you did was live the way that he lived. You didn't touch a piece of clay. You learned how to chop wood the way he chopped wood. You learned how to pull water the way he pulled water. You learned how to garden the way that he gardened. Well, she thought, man, I don't, I don't need any of that sort of stuff. So she was able to convince him to give her a six-month apprenticeship. And in the six months that she was there, she didn't touch a piece of clay. See, the master potter knew that there was, that there was more to his, his technique than sitting at the wheel and throwing the clay. And, and, and she tried to take the easy way out. She tried to take the, the quick way out. And in the end, she learned nothing. Her, her, her craft, her skill, her art didn't grow. See, Jesus wants the disciples to do what he is doing. He expects them, he expects us to emulate him. And so he wants us to go out in solitude and pray and seek the face of God. He's showing us what it is. What it is that we should be doing. But notice what the disciples do here. Again, I just it's so funny to me that Mark throws Simon Peter under the bus and nobody else. But they don't emulate him, do they? They don't see that he's out alone in solitude and praying and go out and maybe join him or find their own place of solitude and pray. No, they come out and they interrupt him and they say, everyone is looking for you. Now they knew that that morning because they hadn't been out in solitude and praying. They knew that because they had been in town and everybody had been going, hey, where's that Jesus guy you follow around? We want to see him. See, Jesus was showing them how to find what they were looking for. How to find connection with God. But they, like us, were a little too dense 
to get it. He was showing them, do what I do. As I said earlier, there were many times in the Gospels where Jesus does something like this, where he goes off to pray. There are three instances in the book of Mark. There's this in, in chapter 1, and then in chapter 6, there's the story, and we, we often lose it because we get wrapped up with what comes next, which is Jesus walking on the water. But the reason Jesus isn't with his disciples when they're out in the storm and he's got to walk out to them is because he has stayed a, behind on his own to pray. And then there's, and then there's in Matthew 14, excuse me, Mark 14. And that's the, the, that's the Jesus going into the garden to pray before he goes to the cross. So those are just three instances here in Mark. They're instances throughout the gospel. And then, of course, there's sort of the, that granddaddy of them all, the 40 days that Jesus spends in the wilderness in prayer and in fasting before he even starts his public ministry. Every time when there's a new phase of Jesus' ministry to start, he goes alone and spends time in prayer. The relationship with God the Father is the, the ground that everything else comes from. And so what we see in all of this is that Jesus prioritized his relationship with God the Father as the foundational relationship that was going to guide all of his other disciple-making relationships. Before he went out, before he got, in, in Mark, before he calls the disciples, just a little earlier in chapter 1, before he calls the disciples, what does he do? He spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying. And that order is the same in Matthew and in Luke as well. He goes to the wilderness to pray and to fast before he calls the disciples. That relationship with God was the, was the, 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 the foundation that all of his other relationships grew from. And so if we wish to be disciple-makers like Jesus, if we wish to follow the way, then we have to prioritize this relationship as well. See, we run into this thing, and this is going to be one of those things where maybe this is hard to hear. We've run into this thing over the last 60, 70, 80 years. where we thought that disciple-making can be bottled up and sold in a program or a method. Man, for $149.99, I can call the, the Sunday School Board or Lifeway and get them to send me a box package that's going to fix everything. We can make all the disciples in the world if we adopt this program or this system. There was a, I was going to ask if anyone remembered this, and... I don't want to ask you that because for some of you it might be telling on yourself how old you are. But there was a program in 1954 that the convention put out called A Million More in 54. Some of you, uh, you, you, you might remember your parents talking about it. But it was this big push in the convention. Add a million people to our churches in 1954. There have been other programs like that over the years. You know, if we just have the right program, the right emphasis, the right system, evangelism, disciple-making is going to all fall into place.
Bob Roberts Jr. is a, is a pastor out in Texas. And I'm very lucky over the next several weeks I'm getting to spend some time with him and allow him to, to mentor me and pour into me, and I'm very thankful for that. But in one of his books, Bob, Bob wrote this. In American culture, production, momentum, and results reign supreme. However, as Western pragmatists, we, often we too often believe that as long as we can produce results, we don't need to examine the results that we were getting. And so we, we package these programs and we, we put them out there and we got statements of faith. We got seeming conversions. But instead of following the way of Jesus, we thought we could borrow this, this consumer culture and bend it to the task of making disciples. But if we can do that, if we can, if we can take these methods and we can bend it to the task of making disciples, then relationship with God isn't necessary. Because the method, the strategy, the system, that's the important part. But I have to ask ourselves this. Is it working? Every year, we see statistics of fewer and fewer and fewer people identifying as Christians. The, the rate of nuns, those folks who identify as nothing, particularly in the younger generations, is absolutely skyrocketing at a rate that, that even a few years ago we would never have been able to predict. Every year, churches close. There are all sorts of statistics, and I've, I've given to you them before, but here, here are a couple. If we're making disciples in the way of Jesus, they'd be disciples who wanted to make disciples. Yet 55% of Protestant churchgoers have never shared the gospel with another person. 55%. Twenty-seven percent, which is not a majority, obviously, but it is a plurality. It is the largest portion. Twenty-seven percent rarely or never pray for opportunities to tell others about Jesus. Twenty-seven percent. For, for a believer to be a disciple of Jesus that makes disciples that make disciples, we need a strong personal relationship with God. It's a relationship that grows as God is prioritized in the life of the disciple. And if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, if we're going to follow what Jesus did, then we need to look at how Jesus grew this relationship. Now, there are a whole bunch of things that we could name. I'm going to name a couple. The first of those is worship. Right here, we see it, right? He went into all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues. Jesus showed up at worship services. We know that Jesus showed up in the temple. We know that Jesus was raised in a family in which temple worship and synagogue attendance was probably the norm. Jesus worshiped. 
and through worship, we can gain closer to God. The second is, is prayer. We saw that in the scripture this morning. We, we, we know Jesus spent enormous amounts of time in prayer to God. One of the other things that, that maybe we don't see as much, but the evidence is there in Scripture, is the study of Scripture. Jesus is very obviously a student of the Scripture. He's taken a great deal of time to study the Scripture. First of all, there's that whole thing that happens when he's a kid and his mom and dad leave him behind at the temple. And the, 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 the scribes and the, the people in the temple are amazed at what he knows, even, even at that age. In the beginning of Luke, Jesus begins his public ministry by, by teaching in the synagogue. Jesus would not have been handed the, the scroll of Isaiah to, to teach in that synagogue unless the folks in his hometown synagogue knew that he had studied Scripture. Of course, we see it in how Jesus talks and, and the things that he says, and, and he knows Scripture backwards and forwards. See, Jesus has not just spent time with Scripture. He hasn't just read it devotionally. He's, he's studied it. He's gotten down into the nitty-gritty of it. So we've got worship, we've got prayer, we've got the study of Scripture. Fasting. That's one of those practices of Jesus that Jesus uses to connect and grow in his relationship with God, and it's one of those things that we do, <clears throat> I don't do a lot of. But we should. Last year, about this time, we spent some time, I asked folks to spend some time in fasting and prayer as we approached Easter, and then the pandemic happened, and with the pandemic came pandemic cookies, and Stress baking. But it's but times of fasting. And here's a fifth one, one that we might not think about. Disciple making. If we wish to grow closer to God, doing the things that God has asked us to do is one way to do that. We don't think of evangelism as disciple-making, as a spiritual practice, as a way of growing in Christ-likeness, as a way of growing closer to God, but that's exactly what it is. Worship and prayer, study of Scripture, fasting and disciple-making. These are just a couple, just a few of the things that Jesus did to grow in his relationship with God the Father that we can and should be doing to grow in our relationship with God the Father. There's a whole, whole list of other spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, sometimes we call them, that can help us grow in, in holiness, grow in Christ-likeness. But the final thing, and this is one of the things that we're going to be looking at and really examining in depth over the next several weeks, is that Jesus engaged in God-centered God-driven relationships with other people. Go back, spend some time in the Gospels, and see how much of what is in the Gospels is about Jesus' relationship with other people. 
I joke, I don't really think this is actually the case, but I joke sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus is always either on his way to, at, or on his way home from a party. But it's because he's in relationship with people. And guess what? It's not the same 12 people over and over and over again. And it's not the good religious people either. It's not a holy huddle that Jesus enmeshes himself in. Let's look, and we're going to be doing this over the next several weeks, the people that Jesus surrounded himself with, the people that Jesus was in relationship with. Brothers and sisters, it's hard to make disciples if everybody you know is a disciple. You ain't going to make any new ones. Yes, Jesus went off, and he spent time, and we're going to look at this, he spent time with the twelve, and he spent time with the three. And he spent time, as we've looked at today, with God. But Jesus also spent time with those folks that weren't good church folks, who needed to hear the good news. And he approached them with love in a God-driven and God-centered relationship. We're called to be disciples. We're called to be disciples who make disciples. And if we want to be a disciple of Jesus, we've got to get, get in the way of Jesus. We've got to follow the way of Jesus. And I would offer that there is no greater disciple-maker who has ever walked the face of the earth than Jesus Christ. And so if we want to make disciples, we need to make disciples the way that Jesus made disciples. And we're going we're to continue to look at that. But where it all has to start is with a rooted, passionate relationship with God. Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? an ongoing relationship with God. One that comes not at the cost of distraction, not at the cost of, of doing it halfway, not at the cost of thinking that this is good enough. But a relationship that's rooted in spending time and in, and in a daily struggle. And brothers and sisters, it is a struggle to grow in Christ-likeness. To grow, to look more and more like the one that we say that we follow. So again, over the next couple of weeks, next week we're going to be looking at the crowds, how Jesus interacted with the crowds. That's one level of relationship that he has with people. But, as Mark told us today, before he got to the crowds, Jesus went to the Father. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 308, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior.